What do you live for? What do you live for? Almost every year, I've, I've shared this before, I get to go on a golf trip with some old friends from high school and college, and we are not good golfers. Um, we actually are all former basketball teammates who are pretending to be golfers when we go. And on one of our recent trips, uh, one of our friends there suggested, hey, why don't we wake up really early Sunday morning, go to like the local 24-hour fitness, and play pickup basketball. And uh, the rest of us were not too thrilled with this idea. It's going to be super early because we had a tea time in the morning. And so we made excuses. It's too early to wake up. None of us really play anymore. Another one said, last time I played, I got injured super bad. And, and then I chimed in and said, the last time I did any running, it was like to the store to run errands. <laughs> Nobody really laughed at that joke when I said it either on the trip. And, but it was my way of saying, I'm totally out of shape. You're out of shape. We, we, we shouldn't go. But my friend was like, guys, it doesn't matter if we're too old or too out of shape. We have to go play because ball is life. And when he said that, it brought us back to those days when ball was life, basketball was life. Like every day we would practice, whether it was for even, even beyond just our team's practice and, and we were looking forward to the games. So like we ate and breathed basketball like all the time. And so we agreed because we got brought back to this nostalgic feeling of when ball was life that we would go play. And it was horrible. <laughs> we showed up and, and there was all these younger, faster players that dominated us. Fortunately, there was no serious injuries, but we were all so sore afterwards, we didn't even play golf that afternoon. <laughs> I learned that day that for me, Basketball is no longer life, quite the opposite. But maybe for some of you who are student athletes that are really into it, you know, for you right now, ball is life, or maybe it's some other sport, football. I've seen a lot of t-shirts around lately about how football is life. I don't think they're talking about American football, but the soccer kind. I saw somebody else wearing a shirt the other day that said, coffee is life. I may have to agree with that one to some degree. For some of you, you may find life in a good book or gardening or music or cars or politics, or maybe you have made your job your life. Climbing the corporate ladder or getting into that program, is, that, that school is what you're striving for, or maybe simply being accepted and respected by your friends or peers. Now, it is great to have interests and hobbies and goals of all kinds of things in life, but there is only one place in which we truly find life. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of that as, as we get to the, the close of the first chapter in his letter to the Philippians. If you have your Bibles, of course, the text will be on the screen, but go with me to chapter 1, and we pick up where we left off in verse 19. Actually, the last half of verse 18, where the sentence begins. Paul says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect 
and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens then, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Per usual in Paul's writings, there are a million things we could dive into to talk about today. We could, we could create several sermons about what we just read. But I want to draw your attention in a special way to that phrase in verse 21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ. For Paul, Christ is life. His purpose, his fulfillment, his everything is found in Christ alone. Knowing and serving Jesus wasn't just an aspect of his life, wasn't just something he did maybe every seven days at church. It was his entire life. Can you truly say that, that Christ is life? Can I? Is Christ life to you? If not, what about your life needs to change before you can say that? This is a dramatic statement from Paul. To live is Christ. And this is the best life you could ever choose. It is a life that Jesus describes as full and abundant. It is, it is experienced with, with peace and joy and purpose. But I want to especially highlight a particular blessing that occurs when we make Christ our life that Paul highlights here, and that is courage. Did you catch Paul mentioning it back in verse 20? Go back there with me real quick. He said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but have what? Sufficient courage, so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. You see, Paul does not know yet what the outcome of his impending trial will be. When he appears before the Roman tribunal, he could uh, receive grace and be acquitted, or he could be condemned to death. And he says here to the Philippians, I expect to have sufficient courage for Christ to be exalted for either outcome. When Christ is your life, your, current, it's your, your courage quotient I worked on that, but I didn't get it right. Your courage quotient is high. 
And I think it's important to note that Paul says he expects to have sufficient courage whether his outcome is life or death. We need courage for both. We need courage to face life because, let's face it, life is hard. As Arwen was beautifully praying about in our time in prayer together, life is hard. It is a struggle. Paul knows that if his life is spared, he will have hard work and labor ahead and that his suffering will continue. He says that his labor will be fruitful and that he will continue to to progress uh, or that they will continue to progress in their faith and their joy in the faith if he does, but it won't be easy. It will be hard. Just to remind you of the kind of hardships that Paul faced in his life and ministry, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 24, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24, it says this, Paul is talking here, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." Boy, whenever I feel like I'm having a hard time, I just read that. (laughs) And I think, Paul had it way harder than I do. No wonder he says in verse 23, I am torn between the two outcomes. Yet he could say in verse 24, it is more necessary that I remain in the body for the progress and joy of your faith. Even though Paul knows that the journey in ministry isn't going to get any easier, he is committed to continuing on, and that takes courage. Now, the suffering that you and I experience for our faith may not be the level of suffering that Paul and the Philippians had to go go through for theirs. I know that there are places in the world where people do have persecution on that kind of level, but for most of us, that's not a reality. We do live in a culture, however, where Christian convictions are not infrequently ridiculed, like in the workplace or academic circles or on the news or in entertainment media. It takes courage, even in our context, to live a life of faith. So what are we to do to be courageous in the, faith of, in the face of that? Does that mean we go out and have this aggressive offensive against our persecutors? On the contrary, The Bible tells us not to do that kind of approach. Paul reminds the Philippians here that God is the one that deals with the oppressors and then our job is to live a life worthy of the gospel. I love that. Although this world is a dark place at times, we are to be committed to still spreading the good news. That's how we combat our persecution. That's our call. And though the gospel work we do may not be as strenuous as it was for Paul, I think you would agree with me that ministry is not always easy. It takes a lot of commitment and time and energy and sacrifice. 
I'll be honest with you, family, there are many days where I'm like, Lord, I just don't have it in me to keep going. In fact, the sermon, you could probably tell, the sermon was really hard to have come together this week. I don't know why. Maybe it was that God was trying to give me an illustration because I couldn't find any good ones this week. Something to be able to tell you that, uh, to illustrate a struggle. It was so hard. It got finished early this morning. And it wasn't after a long effort, starting way back from Monday to try to get it done sooner. It has been a grind for some reason, especially this week, to have this come together. Maybe God was teaching me a lesson. I know that there's got to be days for many of you where you say the same thing. Lord, it's hard to find the time or the energy uh, to, to prepare again for this Sabbath school class or to organize this small group or prepare that meal or to lead worship. I know ministry is not easy. But no matter how hard ministry gets, I have discovered something. That there isn't anything that causes more joy or fulfillment in my life than being in God's service. Haven't you found that to be true? Which is why I'm so grateful that he gives us sufficient courage. Because it gives us the perseverance to continue experiencing his joy as we serve him. And though we may not suffer the exact kinds of physical agony that Paul describes there in 2 Corinthians, we suffer other kinds. And the things that we suffer through because of the results of sin in our world are just as hard and cruel. So many of us I know are in our church family are going through tough times battling different diseases or tragedies. Enduring pain. It takes courage to face life. And the person for whom Christ is life has a sufficient supply of it to face it. But as Paul says, we also need courage not just to face life, but also to face death. Which Paul says, I fully expect to have courage to face that as well. In fact, he says, to die is gain and that he desires to depart and be with Christ. Now, it is not my purpose to delve super deep into this today, but as long as we're here, I think it's worth pausing to recognize that this text, these few texts from Paul, have often been difficult for some when it comes to the, the topic of the state of the dead. If you are a guest with us today, and you may not know what Seventh-day Adventist Christians believe the Bible teaches about what happens when we die, we believe that the Bible teaches that death is a state of sleep. Jesus himself described Lazarus as sleeping, right, before he rose him from the grave, how he was sleeping uh, for four days when he was describing Lazarus being dead. When God created us in the beginning, when he created man, he did so by breathing the breath of life into the, the body that he had formed in the dirt. And so we know that the Bible teaches that breath and body together equals a living soul. But when the body dies and the breath of life returns back to God as it's described in the Bible, then we experience what we often call soul sleep. We do not go on having a, a conscience or, or an existence somewhere else. The Bible tells us the dead know nothing. We are at rest. So how do we reconcile what Paul says here in Philippians 1 about death with what the Bible teaches about it in, in, in other places that we know? Well, number one, give you a few tools on how to approach this text. It is a poor exegetical practice to try and develop 
a theological position from a text where the Bible writer is not attempting to teach on the topic, but is merely expressing a personal sentiment. In other words, Paul here is bearing his soul's emotion to his dear friends. And he just wanted them to know how he felt about the possibility of dying. That's the context of these words here. Second of all, we need to read other texts on this subject by the same author. There's many that we could look at, but we'll just look at two. I know that you probably know them well, but 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse uh, 51, if we have those on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our bodies, our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And then, one more from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are living, who are still living when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from the graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Both of these texts also from Paul not only bring comfort to the believers knowing that the promise of the second coming is happening and hope for what happens after death, but it clearly shows that Paul sees the time when the dead will be with the Lord after the resurrection. And of course, we know the next thing that Paul would know if he does pass away is that Jesus is resurrecting him because he doesn't feel the passage of time. But we see clearly in the other text that he writes on the topic that he, he believes that we will have to wait until Christ's second coming for that resurrection to happen. A third tool you can use to approach this text is to remember that it is not uncommon for Bible writers to refer to two events together that may be separated by a long period of time. So Paul describes how he will depart and be with Christ. It doesn't necessarily mean that those things are going to happen right after each other. There's many times in scripture where this is a reality. A good example of this is in John's gospel, the fifth chapter. I don't have the text on the screen, but that's where Jesus is describing the two resurrections, the resurrection of those who will live and the resurrection of those who will be condemned. And we know that from Revelation chapter 20, those two resurrections are separated by a significant amount of time. But when Jesus talks about it in John chapter 4, he doesn't talk about that separation of time. It is not uncommon for Bible writers to refer to two events together that may be separated by a long period of time. So with all that in mind, we can conclude that Paul is not saying that he is wishing to die here because he will go straight to heaven. But what Paul is saying here is that he recognizes that death meant laying down his earthly struggle and he would be resting entirely in the tender hands of his Savior. Not because he was wanting to give up, but because he knew that whether he lived or died, his deliverance was secure in Jesus. 
So he found courage to surrender to whatever would happen, even if it was death. In his book entitled A Walking Disaster, Christian psychologist and researcher Dr. Jamie Aiton tells his story about how at the age of 35 he was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer that had spread to several other parts of his body. He also talks about how just before that, before that, him and his family also lived through Hurricane Katrina. In fact, the subtitle of his book, because it may be meaningful to some of you to read this book, he says, it's a walking disaster, subtitle, What Surviving Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience. It's a good read. In his book, he writes this. He says, for the first six months, whenever I asked for a prognosis, all my oncologist would say was, I can't tell you that it's going to be okay, Jamie. It's too early to tell. If there's anyone you want to see or anything you want to do, now is the time. Cancer wasn't the first disaster I faced. My family and I had moved to South Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina. But this disaster was different. There was no opportunity to evacuate as I did before Katrina made landfall. This time the disaster was striking within. I was a walking disaster. And Aiton goes on to develop in his book this idea of how he dealt with both of these traumatic situations with what he called spiritual surrender. And I'll let him describe it in his own words. He says this, spiritual surrender helps us understand what we have control over and what we don't. In a research study that I led after Katrina, we found that people who showed higher levels of spiritual surrender tended to do better. This finding didn't make sense to me at the time. It seemed like a passive faith response. Fast forward to my cancer disaster. I vividly remember taking the trash to the curb one winter morning while praying that God would heal me. The freezing air felt like tiny razor blades cutting across my hands and feet because of the nerve sensitivity caused by chemotherapy. Wondering if God even heard my prayers for healing, I kept praying as I walked back inside my home. Then, all of a sudden, I dropped to my knees and prayed the most challenging prayer of my life. Instead of continuing to pray for God's healing, I asked that God would take care of my wife and children if I didn't make it. This was the hardest prayer I had ever prayed. For the first time in my life, I truly experienced spiritual surrender. I finally understood True spiritual surrender is far from passive. It is instead an act of profound courage. Aiden wasn't giving up or being passive. He was facing death with courage. Knowing that live or die, his life was secure in the hands of his Savior. Amen. You see, when Christ is your life, then life or death actually becomes a win-win proposition. Not to say that life or death are easy. We have already talked about that. Both are hard to face. But when Christ is your life, life or death becomes a win-win proposition, which is a perspective that is totally unique to biblical Christianity. 
If life is so bad that only death seems workable, that's not a win-win. If death is feared because it represents the end of everything, all love, all opportunity, all growth, well, that's not a win-win either. But when Christ is your life, then you have sufficient courage to face either reality because live or die, you are secure in the tender hands of Jesus. So I ask you again, family, what do you live for? I pray that your answer to that question now and always will be the same answer as that of Paul's, where you will say, for to me, to live is Christ. Rather than offer a prayer, I just want to leave uh, these words from the text with you as our benediction today. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel.